0: title of my message is The Wisdom of God. The Wisdom of God. You know, our society divides us in all kinds of different categories. Uh, We're divided on the basis of our age, on the basis of our income, the basis of our nationality, the basis of our ethnicities, uh, our education, many other different ways we are divided up. And of course, we know the Corinthians were guilty of a type of divisiveness as well, a sinful divisiveness that was putting believers into groups that were considered better than another group because of who they were following, a better leader than other leaders. Some of them were following Paul. Some of them were following Peter. Some of them were following Apollos. Some of them even had the audacity to say, We're following Jesus. Well, these people prided themselves on each having a better wisdom, a better way of thinking than the other groups. And Paul has been spending his time in this letter debunking the idea of human wisdom, worldly wisdom, and showing how even God's foolishness. And his foolishness is the preaching of Christ crucified. That foolishness is wiser than any human wisdom. He's demonstrated the superiority of God's foolishness in the calling of the Corinthians to Christ. And last week, he compared it to his own message and his own ministry. And before Paul rips into the Corinthians again, and he will in chapter 3, he takes a few additional moments here in chapter 2 in our text to discuss what is true wisdom after all. What is the wisdom from God? And this morning, our text confronts us with the truth that the ultimate and the only significant division that really exists in the world between human beings is between those who are spiritual and those who are natural. The words in Greek are pneumatikos. That's the word we get from the Greek word pneuma, which means spirit. And the other word is "sukikas." How do you like that one? That's from the Greek word suki. That's not something you eat at a Japanese restaurant. That is what we get the word psyche from. Dealing with things that are natural, physical. And the Bible tells us that the natural man lives his life valuing things that are physical and natural and material, and they don't understand. And they don't appreciate that there's anything beyond that. Well, certainly as we look around at people living their lives today, it's pretty obvious that people are working ridiculously hard to try to create their version of heaven on earth. Because people don't have a conviction, no real belief in their heart That there is something waiting for them on the other side of death once they leave this earth. And so people live for the moment. We see it all around us, don't we? They live for the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. This is the way the world orders its life. No hope for eternity. Of course, the Bible absolutely runs in the face of this kind of thinking. Counters it. At the heart of our text, I think, is verse 14. I'd like to read it, and then we'll come back to it later. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. So let's begin by working through these verses. We've got a fair amount of verses today. So I'm going to read fast, and you take notes fast. And there's some copies of the notes out at the Information Center if you missed something. And of course, you can always listen to recordings later, right? But let's work through these verses and see what Paul means when he talks about the true wisdom of God. And and I want us to notice it in, in three big parts today. The wisdom described... That's point one. The wisdom described. Secondly, the wisdom delivered. And thirdly, the wisdom discerned. Discerned. Understood. So let's talk about the wisdom described. Verses 6 through 9. Paul wants us to understand right off the bat here that the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ is not some kind of inferior wisdom. Christianity is, is profound, and Christianity is dignified, more so than any human wisdom. Look at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. The issue of maturity is one that Paul's going to come back to again when we get to chapter 3. If you look ahead in those early verses of chapter 3, you'll notice he's going to call them babies, infants, only able to drink milk. They're not ready for solid food. And their immaturity is on display. Not because, listen to this, not because... They're new believers. That's not why they're immature. It's not because they're new believers. It's because they are quarrelsome, divisive, argumentative, disruptive within the church. That is Christ's body. And the maturity that Paul refers to here in verse 6 is the maturity of those who have been captured by the gospel. So if you fall into that category, if your heart has been captured by the beautiful gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection for your sins, you, you are among the mature. This is for certain. These are people who have been freed from the world's wisdom. People who have recognized that what Paul is proclaiming is true wisdom from God. Think about this for a minute. The truth is, and we don't like to think. We don't like to think. There's there's several things I'm going to say today. We don't like to think about. Okay, so let me just get that all the way now. I'm going to say some things that are going to rub you the wrong way. Okay, sorry. They rub me the wrong way too. It's God's word, not Brian's word. Okay, so let it rub you the wrong way and let it do its work in, in your life. Okay, it's doing it. It's doing it to me too. But the truth is, it is possible for those who have been saved a long time to actually be immature. It's possible for those who have been saved only a short time to be more mature than people who have been saved a long time. How is that possible? Well, the Bible's going to tell us it's because their growth is dependent On their level of submission to the Scriptures and to being filled with the Spirit and to being zealous and hungry for the things of God. I was listening to a sermon last week and the pastor was describing his church and he was saying that the people who were coming back to their evening service were the ones who had more recently come to faith in Jesus Christ. He made the comment, they don't know enough to know that they didn't need to come back. (laughs) They were crazy enough and hungry enough for the word of God that if there was a chance to get two meals a day, they were there for them. They were zealous for the things of Christ. Now, I'm not trying to shame anybody who doesn't stay for ABF classes. Or who doesn't come back for evening meetings. Or who doesn't attend a Bible study during the week. But, but this is what I do want to say. And I want this to rub you the wrong way. Okay? There is a pretty direct correlation between the hunger that we have for the Lord and His Word and our spiritual growth. That's not surprising, right? Right? Anything that we are, quote unquote, hungry for, we can often become proficient in, right? Whether that's our job or our hobbies, maybe that's sports, maybe that's our family, maybe it's investment and money and stocks, maybe it's politics and the news of the day, maybe it's food. Or entertainment. Where we put our time. Where we put our energy. Where we put our money. Where we put our hunger and thirst. Is where our hearts are. We feed our hearts. And we grow in the areas that we feed them. So Paul's point here is that the way to maturity is open to all, but not everybody progresses as well as others. And he's going to call them out on that in chapter 3, especially, next week, or in a couple weeks, three weeks, yeah. Interestingly, Paul changes from the first person singular, what does that mean? I, in verses 1 through 5, he's used that a lot last week, didn't he? This week, he uses a lot of the first-person plural, we. And then he changes back in chapter 3 and verse 1 to the first-person singular, I. Why does he do that? It's one of the things we look at, like changes like that in the way people talk in the Scripture. I don't know exactly why, to be honest with you. It could be that he's trying to include all of his readers to think about their place in this discussion. Maybe it's that he's trying to identify himself with everyone else that's a Christian teacher. Who imparts the word of God to others as we'll see. He might be speaking specifically here of what is true of himself as an apostle. We're not exactly sure. We can't be dogmatic about it. And the emphasis is not about whether he uses I or we. But the emphasis here is on the wisdom which he imparts. And this wisdom that he he describes, he describes it in a few ways. First of all, he describes it by what it is not. He describes the wisdom by what it is not. And that's no surprise to us who have gone through 1 Corinthians to this point. The wisdom which Christianity proclaims is not the wisdom of this age. That's no surprise, right? Now this phrase, of this age here, he's already used uh, back in chapter 1 in verse 20. Where is the debater of this age? And he's going to use it again in chapter 3 in verse 18 when he speaks about those who think they are wise by, by the standards of this age. He's speaking about, when he says of this age, he's talking about things that are, that are transient. Things that come and go. Things that will be replaced. Things that pass off the scene. And the wisdom, he says, that we are proclaiming is not like that. It's not like that. It's not of the age or of the rulers of the age, who he mentions here in verse 6 and then again in verse 8. These rulers, he says, are coming to nothing. Now, now that may be not a great encouragement to the rulers, right? But, but actually, it's true of all of us in one sense, isn't it? Because does it really matter how high and how lofty your career, your station in life might go? Eventually, all of us are going to be put in a box and put in the dirt. So there's a sense in which all of us have a have a passing away effect to our lives. So we shouldn't think of ourselves as any better than these rulers, right? So there's a little humility we should have here. The rulers of this age will pass away. They will come to nothing. Now, I have my personal hopes about which ones will come to nothing sooner than the others. Uh, but I won't share that with you this morning. Uh, we all understood, though, don't we, that rulers are mortal, They are temporary. In fact, verse 8 says, none of the rulers of the age understood this, understood the wisdom of God. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. A A number of commentators suggest that this phrase, the rulers of this age refers to what Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. You know where he talks about the princes and powers and principalities and rulers, you know, that that kind of thing. Heavenly places, spiritual powers, demonic activity, that kind of thing. Now I understand those are passing away too, right? There's an end to those. But I don't think that's the correct way to view this phrase. And the reason is that Because he says that these particular rulers did not understand the message, the wisdom. But demonic powers, spiritual powers, always understood the message didn't they? In the Gospels. From the very start of Jesus' ministry, if you go back to Mark's Gospel, which is the earliest Gospel, the first Gospel, you go to chapter 1, read verses 23 and 24. Jesus confronts demonic powers right away in his ministry. He says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, demon, spiritual power. And the demon, the man, that has the demon, cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And down in verse 34, again, it says, And Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. So, just an ordinary understanding of this context in which Jesus lived and, and the day in which Paul is writing leads me to the conclusion that this is not a reference, this rulers is not a reference to spiritual powers, demonic powers. I think it's a reference to the Jewish and Roman authorities who stood by as Jesus was crucified and they didn't understand What they were doing. They didn't understand the wisdom of God. For example, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 3, verse 17. He says to his listeners, You acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. And even Jesus, right, is on the cross, paying for our sins. And what is the cry, one of the cries that comes from his mouth in that moment? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what the wisdom of God is not. It's not like human wisdom. What is it? What is the wisdom of God? How is it described? I would suggest at least three things from our text. I'll move quickly. One, a secret wisdom. Two, an eternal wisdom. Three, a revealed wisdom. Notice in verse 7, first of all, it is a secret wisdom. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Let's think about this verse for a minute. Now, this this secrecy, this hiddenness, is we shouldn't think about this as like Uh, Something we're trying to solve, like anybody remember Rubik's Cubes? Anybody ever have a lot of trouble solving Rubik's Cubes, like me? You know, I I, I probably was 30-something when I actually sat down and read the instructions on how to solve a Rubik's Cube. Before that, I did like all you all did, but won't admit, I peeled the stickers off. Come on, how many did it? Yep. Or later, when you got a little clever, you could find out that you could kind of pop them out and turn them around and pop them back in. Yep, I see. Yep, guilty. Yep. This is not, this is not like this. Um, this is a mystery that people can't solve on their own. They can't discover it on their own. This wisdom that we impart is hidden. It's hidden to human man's natural reasoning. His deductive abilities, his attempts to unscramble all the mysteries of the universe. It's hidden. It's also a mystery in the sense that we understand that term in the New Testament. And you all know what this means. A mystery in the New Testament is something that was hidden in the Old Testament, not understood in the Old Testament, but which God, through Jesus Christ, has unlocked that mystery and revealed to us what that mystery means. And that has certainly been the case with the message of Christ crucified. And, what, and that little purpose about Jesus coming to die on a cross and, and what all that would accomplish, that mystery was hidden throughout all of time, even though it was planned in eternity past. And then it was revealed in this little nation on the Mediterranean. And in this little insignificant place, remember what they said about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? From that little place, Jesus was born and lived and finally bore our sins on a cross and died to take our place. And you know what the average guy on the street thinks about all that? That's crazy. Get out of here. I mean, I can see Jesus as a prophet. I can see Jesus as a good man. I can see Jesus as a great teacher. But I just can't see Jesus as the only way to heaven. The wisdom of God. And you know the fact of the matter is, he's right. He can't see it. We'll come back to that in a minute. It's a secret wisdom. Second, it's an eternal wisdom. God decreed before the ages for our glory. When he writes to the Ephesians, he makes this really clear. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, it's full of this mysterious purpose of God. Let me read one verse to you. Chapter 1, verse 9 of Ephesians. Making known to us the mystery of his will, According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Christ is all in all, things in heaven and things on earth. What's Paul saying? From eternity past, God planned, God the Father planned to introduce God the Son, Jesus Christ, into this world so that in the times of their fulfillment under Christ, all things in heaven, all things on earth will be brought together. And despite the fact, brothers and sisters, that the Antichrist is going to do his very best job to fake it, he will not be able to produce the final perfection of all things which only jesus can do when the lion lays down with the lamb and when everything is made perfect and that's a plan that was hidden all the way back in eternity this plan amazingly it says here in our text god decreed before the ages for our glory isn't that an amazing thought that God decreed for our glory, our glory, yours and mine. Paul put it this way in Romans eight eighteen, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Anyone ever suffered in this life? Oh, yeah. Is the suffering real? Yeah. Is it long? Yeah. Does it go away? Sometimes never, right? But those sufferings can't even be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The best is yet to come. We believe that as Christians. We cling to that hope as Christians. And it is because this wisdom is secret and eternal. And a third Uh, description of what wisdom this wisdom is. It is revealed. It is revealed. And this is going to take us now into the second main point that I want to talk about today, which is the wisdom delivered from verses 10 through 13. So kind of follow along here as we talk about the wisdom delivered. And we're describing, we're continuing to talk about God's wisdom and describing this third aspect of God's wisdom And here we find the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It comes out very clearly in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And you'll notice Spirit has a capital S. The wisdom which men cannot figure out on their own, they can't discover it by their own observation, by their own reasoning. That wisdom is made known, how? By the Spirit of God. By the way, quick sidebar. That's what also needs to make us very humble and very cautious when it comes to our use of apologetics. We've been studying uh, the last many, many weeks in our ABF classes uh, a theme called So Many Questions. Today's our last last, uh, class of that, right? And we've been taking like two questions each week that the world may raise to us about our faith and giving us some ideas on how to answer those biblically. So we're ready to give an answer to people who ask us those questions, right? However, I I, want to say we are thankful to God for all of those who are gifted and as you are gifted as well to speak apologetically for the gospel, defending, arguing the doctrines of the faith, people who can articulate a defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people who who can substantiate the doctrine of the Trinity. We're thankful for that. But brothers and sisters, understand this. You can take 10 books full of apologetics, drop them off at your next door neighbor's door, who doesn't know Christ and they can read all the way through them and even understand what the books are saying and that in itself is not enough to bring that person to faith in Jesus Christ this is important this is another thing that might rub us the wrong way but it's the it's the truth of scripture and we have to embrace it no individual ever came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of figuring it out on his own or her own. The way anybody ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ, according to this scripture and many others, is that God reveals it to them by his Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. This is the explanation of verse 9, by the way. Back up to verse 9. Many of us have known verse 9 from our earliest days uh, in church settings. Um, As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? It's been put on lots of cards all over the place. Um, It's one of the most memorized verses in all of 1 Corinthians. It's also one of the most misapplied verses in all of 1 Corinthians. Most people think this verse, verse 9, has to do with the fact that we can't fully imagine or understand or appreciate the wonders of heaven. Now, it's true, we can't. (laughs) We can't fully appreciate or understand the wonders of heaven. But is that what verse 9 is actually saying? What's he talking about here? He's talking about a wisdom that is secret and and hidden, that cannot be known by human wisdom, reasoning, and then he takes some phrases from Isaiah 64, kind of paraphrases them, puts them together, and says, "Listen, I has not seen. You didn't see it. No ear has heard. It didn't come as the result of knowledge. No heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Then verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. What are these things? This wisdom. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the wisdom of God. And notice it who who he reveals it to. To us. Who's us? Verse 9 again. Those who love him. Those who love him. The Corinthians were big on knowledge, weren't they? We're going to find out that more as we work through the letter. They regarded knowledge, especially secret knowledge, if I have some knowledge that you don't. Oh, they really like that. Paul says, listen. God has chosen to reveal this to those who love him. Just love him. Do you love God today? Do I love God today? Have you told him this morning that you love him? Did you wake up this morning to a new day full of new mercies and say, Father, I love you. We may have said it to our spouse We may have said it to our children. But friends, the wonder of all wonders this morning is that we can even say it to him at all. This is the wisdom that we impart. It's secret. It's eternal. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on in verse 10 to tell us more about what the Spirit's work is. Oh, my word, I've got to hurry. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, that doesn't mean that the Spirit is discovering things he didn't know. It's not like the Holy Spirit's figuring out new stuff. It's the idea that the Spirit explores truth. Or sometimes we use the old phrase to plumb the depth of truth in order to reveal it. To humble believers. Notice the phrase there, even the depths of God. The depths of God. The Spirit reveals to us the depths of God. The fact that God is endless. Chew on that. How do we even conceive of a being who is endless? How can you get that? You're going to write that down in some mathematical equation and teach it to your children? You're going to come up with some kind of computer program that teaches the eternity of God? And then once you get it worked out, you'll become a believer? Never going to happen. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Wrap your head around that. God is omnipresent everywhere all the time, all over the world. God is inscrutable. How in the world do we even come to an understanding of that? The answer is right here. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. How do you learn the deep stuff about God? The Holy Spirit. And so, to underscore this, Paul gives us an analogy in verse 11. Who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him? That's a fair thing to say, right? You may be sitting, if you're a husband and wife here this morning, you may be sitting next to someone that you love most in all the world, someone who knows you better than anyone else in all the world, but they still don't know you like you know yourself, do they? So he applies that, right? If it's true of the human psyche... What about God? He goes on to say, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Notice again, a capital S. He's referring here to the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's role to explore the depths of God and impress that on the minds and the hearts of those who love him. It's what he does. So he says in verses 12 and 13, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This, it seems to me, is where you get into a little of Paul's apostolic dimension here. He's talking about the the nature of inspiration itself. He's spoken about revelation back in verse 10, right? The Spirit reveals it. God is a God of revelation. Now he says God is a God of inspiration. He gives us the very words. The very words that Paul is writing in this very moment. We as Christians say we believe in the plenary. That means the complete, the inerrant, not one error, straightforward giving of Scripture. That the words themselves in this book are inspired. That's what he's saying to us here. By the way, that's why we preach expository messages at Heather Hills. Because we believe that every word is inspired by God. That's why we preach expository messages. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't preach expository messages. We preach something to make you happy and send you home. Something to make you laugh and send you home. But every word is inspired. Every word is from God. That's what he's saying here. So then, we, we, as we proclaim, as we impart these words like Paul did, by the Spirit, we do it in words. We don't just do it in ideas. We use his words, the word he gave us. And we express those truths using spiritual words to spiritual people. All right, move on quickly. Third uh, point, the wisdom discerned, verses 14 to 16. That brings us back to verse 14, the final main point here. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Paul's teaching us here that the ministry of the Spirit is necessary not only in the giving of God's wisdom. He reveals it to us. He inspires the very words of it. But the Spirit's ministry is also necessary in what we call the illuminating of that wisdom. So that an individual who might be here this morning, sitting under the sound of the preaching of the Word of God, or perhaps listening to their friend as they share with them, The truth of the gospel. The Spirit's ministry is to take that truth of God's Word and help people get it. Understand it. Make sense to them. Because the plain fact of the matter is that there are people sitting in churches right now all over this country, all over hundreds of countries, all around the world. They're sitting under the preaching the Word of God. And some people are sitting under the preaching the Word of God and thinking, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I hear what he's saying. I understand the logic, but I don't get it. And I'm not surprised by that. And you shouldn't be surprised by that either. Because verse 14 tells us that the unspiritual man, the natural man, does not possess in and of himself the necessary resources to recognize or appreciate or welcome and receive what the Spirit of God wants to give to his messengers. Let let me say that one more time. Man, by his very nature, natural man, without the Spirit, whether he is a boy at school, or a girl at school, or a a, a little toddler laying in your crib, or an older grandpa or grandma, or uh, a middle-aged success story, These people do not have the necessary resources to recognize or appreciate or welcome and receive what the Spirit of God proclaims through the Word of God. Now, are you prepared to accept that as true? Is it what the Bible is teaching? I would submit it is. So if that's true, then let me ask you this. Why on earth would we proclaim this wisdom of God, Christ crucified? Why would we proclaim this to men and women who do not have the capacity, the ability to recognize it and embrace this truth? This has to be the ultimate futility in all of life. To tell people something they don't have the ability to understand. Why would we do that? Why would we expend such energy and time to convey a wisdom that is secret and eternal and revealed? Why even bother? And by the way, there are some Christians who say that and they're wrong. Here's the reason why. As the Word of God is proclaimed, it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take down the veil over a sinner's blind eyes, to pull the plugs out of their deaf ears, to remove, as Isaiah and Jeremiah say, their stony hearts. And give them a heart of flesh. A heart that can receive and embrace the truth of God's word. So a man or a woman may come and listen regularly to the proclamation of the word of God. They may engage in worship and singing. In prayer they may go through a membership class they may even serve in some kind of a ministry in the church and may not know Christ it's possible because there is only one way to enter the kingdom of God and it is a result of the Spirit of God at work in their hearts convincing them they are sinners And that they need this very Jesus who is being proclaimed to them. So we don't really have any other options as a church, brothers and sisters. Like Paul, we preach Christ crucified. That's our message. The gospel is our message. Martin Luther wrote this. Man is like a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife? He's like a log or a stone. He's like a lifeless statue, which uses neither eyes nor mouth, neither senses nor hearts, unless he is enlightened, converted, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. Unquote. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. This refers to the fact that it is the spiritual man alone or woman alone who has such a firm and sound knowledge of the mysteries of God that they can make judgments and distinguish between right and wrong, between truth and error. He can figure out what is the teaching of God versus the invention of man, but nobody judges him. What does that mean? Does it mean that nobody ever finds anything wrong with him? Nobody can evaluate his faults? No, it doesn't mean that. It's talking about being able to judge and discriminate the things that are spiritual. The natural man cannot do that. Because you need the Spirit of God to be able to exercise these kinds of judgments. Another translation puts it like this. The spiritual person judges all things, but is not subject to merely human judgments. Does that make it a little clearer? The matter of our being spiritual or natural, saved or lost, is not something that can be determined by people, but by having the Spirit of God. I like how one author summarizes this section. He says, This letter is not about making unbelievers feel inferior to believers. It's about helping believers to understand who they are as God's people. Since they are in Christ, their thinking and their whole approach to life, including their priorities and attitude to sin and holiness, should be entirely different from that of the unspiritual person. To the unspiritual person, Paul preaches the gospel and trusts in the power and wisdom of God to deliver people from judgment. To the spiritual person, Paul is saying, how can you think of living as unspiritual people do? How can you think of making judgments among people in the way they do let's conclude with verse 16 for who has understood the mind of christ the mind of the lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of christ we don't have the time this morning but i'd encourage you to go back and read isaiah 40 go back and read the last couple chapters of the book of job when god said hey when i was when i was doing this where were you when i made this where were you Were you around? No. No, we weren't, right? We answer quickly. But we have the mind of Christ. How do you get the mind of Christ? Was this unique to the apostles? Did you have to be like Paul to have the mind of Christ to be able to really figure things out? Well, there's a sense in which the apostles were uniquely in tune with Jesus, wasn't it? I mean, they were walking with him. But this mind of Christ was to spread from the apostles to all who would come to know and love Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe the most beautiful illustration of this is in Luke 24. Jesus speaks to those two on the way to Emmaus, remember? It's my favorite story in the New Testament. In Luke 24, and they're not understanding what has just happened in Jerusalem, right? This man was crucified. The man they thought was their hope. The one that was going to overthrow Rome, you know? He's dead. And they're like, they're demoralized. They're dejected. They don't understand what's going on. You know, Jesus appears to them. They, don't, they can't recognize him at the time. He walks with them. He talks to them about the law, Moses. He, he goes back to their home. He takes bread. Remember? He blesses it and breaks it. And in that moment, their eyes are opened. And he vanishes from their sight. A couple verses later, Jesus appears to his disciples for the second time in a locked room. And he shows them his hands and his feet. They're not getting it either. If you read the verses there, they're like, some are in disbelief with joy. <laughs> disbelief with joy. Right? I don't believe this is happening, but I'm really happy you're here. And then there's that beautiful verse 45, Luke 24:45. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Heather Hills, the reason in our text that verse 16 is true, the reason that we have the mind of Christ is because verse 12 is true. We have the spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you this morning, has God opened your mind? It doesn't mean that you know and understand everything. Nor does it mean that if we have the mind of Christ, we don't need human teachers anymore. And it doesn't mean that the study of the word isn't hard. But it means that every Christian who is diligent and obedient can understand this book. Every one of you. You don't need a priest to interpret it for you. You don't need a holy man to go away and climb some high mountain and come back and give you some kind of eloquent mumbo-jumbo. You ought to be able to go home and do the same thing that I've done this week. Take your Bible, get alone before God and say, Spirit of God, you are my teacher. Show me the wisdom of God. Make me hunger for the food in this book. Change me to be more like Jesus. And he will. Every time. I'll ask the praise team to come back and we'll have a final song here in just a minute. Sorry I'm going a little long. I'm not sorry, but you know, you get tired of listening, so I'm sorry for that. Let me try to make some simple application. Just hang with me. After all these words... So what? A couple things to think about. First, let's ask God to humble us. Since we recognize we're not ultimately the significant ones in this process. It's not because we're super smart that we're saved. Oh no. It's not because we figured it all out. The Spirit of God convicts and convinces us. What are we? We are messengers of that message. The message that has come to us, we are now to message it to others. Whether we share it with our spouse, whether we share it with our kids, whether we share it with our coworkers, whether we share it with our neighbors. After all these words, so what? Well, we'd better be prayerful people, shouldn't we? that we should be praying down the almighty power of God's Spirit. So that as the word is proclaimed in every setting in which it goes forth, when it goes forth here on a Sunday morning, when it goes forth in your Bible study, when it goes forth in the, at the mom house, when it goes forth in any ministry, in any personal one-to-one contact, when the word of God goes forth this week, we better pray. That the eyes of people's understanding might see. And that their ears might hear. And that their hearts might open. That their minds might understand. After all these words, so what? I think it shows us how to do evangelism. We, we want to be as imaginative as we can, as we can possibly be in building bridges, pathways into our communities to establish relationships and contexts in which we can proclaim the message of faith. We can get as creative at that as we want, and we're going to try to do a better job than we've been doing. And we must pray that the Lord would show us that there is a world out there full of people to whom this very message remains secret and hidden. We need to pray that he would give us boldness to open our mouths and proclaim it to them. How shall they hear without a preacher? That's what you all are. You think I'm the preacher. No, I'm not. I'm one of the preachers. You are all preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our evangelistic, our evangelistic efforts at Heather Hills Baptist Church in 2022 are utterly dependent on all of us preaching the gospel, utterly dependent on all of us praying in dependence on the Holy Spirit, utterly dependent on all of us giving God's words to people and not our own, so that he can do what he does best, raise the dead.